for me, when I'm presenting, I have devoured this project. It's been said that I, I look like a lion hunting a gazelle. You know, I'll put the I'll put the fabrics up on the board and then I look at them and I stand back and I look at them from different angles and then I rip one off and I put a different one up and just until the energy of the room feels right. So by the time I get to the client, I'm standing pretty solidly in what I'm presenting to them. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the editor-in-chief of Business of Home. Welcome to Trade Tales. In every episode, I'll be talking to interior designers about nurturing creativity, finding their firm's financial footing, setting goals, and discovering their own version of success as a result. My guest today is a designer who spent years working under great designers in established firms. His experience provided him with a wealth of expertise when he started his own business and forced him to reckon with what it really means to be a design principal. I can't wait to share it with you. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Gabby, where livable luxury is more than just a look. Gabby's design team curates the most exquisite selection of designs across all furniture categories with customizable features and fabrics to suit any style and every setting. Partner with Gabby to provide your clients a unique style and to get all of the resources you need to create beautiful living spaces. Explore Gabby online to access details and dimensions, product photos, and real-time product availability. And for a special offer on your next order, go to gabbyhome.com slash B-O-H. That's G-A-B-B-Y home.com slash B-O-H. This podcast has been sponsored by Moore & Giles Leather. Founded in 1933, in Lynchburg, Virginia, Moore & Giles is dedicated to designing and developing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit moreandgiles.com slash leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help you with your next project. That's M-O-O-R-E-A-N-D-G-I-L-E-S dot com slash leather. There were the redecorations of my childhood bedroom. There were the avoiding finance finals in college while reading Architectural Digest, things like that. But I grew up, you know, in Ohio in um, a pretty blue collar area and interior design really wasn't something that I thought could be a profession. I went to school and I got actually a degree in business management and art history. And then I moved to San Francisco and was like, oof, you know, 40 years of office work was not what I had in mind. So I went back to school and got a degree in interior architecture and design uh, in San Francisco. And then I started my career there. That's Kevin Isbell. He soon landed his first industry job and discovered that in many ways, his design education was just getting started. I worked for the renowned designer Orlando Diaz Esqui, who's um, based in San Francisco. I always joke that for someone who's known for his use of white, I learned a lot about how to use color from him. He would send me out to the 
the design center in San Francisco. When I came back, he always would make me lay them out in hue order from lightest to dark. So then he would pull and say like, you know, do you understand why this one should be here instead of here, right? This one has a little bit more gray or this one has a little bit more. So he really, really trained my eye with that exercise. You wouldn't expect it from, you know, the Prince of White, (laughs) but um, it, it taught me a lot. You know, in school, everything is so esoteric, but there it was real with real budgets and real materials and it opened my eyes to so much. After two years in San Francisco, Kevin decided that it was time to take on a bigger city. A transition that wasn't quite as smooth as he had hoped. Packed up, gave away everything I owned, drove cross country, and showed up in New York ready to rumble. Ignorance is bliss, so there was no plan. I was working at the hottest design firm in San Francisco. I was like, this is going to be no problem at all. Well, New York and 9-11 said otherwise. So it took me a minute to, to land on my, on my feet. But I did eventually, working for designer Celeste Cooper. From there, then I went to Bill Huber. And I was with Bill Huber for five years, ending there as design director. And then departed there in 2009. And then that is when Kevin Isbell Interiors was born. When starting his own firm... Kevin came to realize that both his degree and his on-the-job design education had only cleared the way to his biggest challenge yet, becoming a design leader himself. I wanted to talk to Kevin about the business coach who altered the course of his career, why he builds downtime into his workday, and how he discovered the power of saying no. When you first started your firm, your first client was your only client for quite some time. How did you make that work? Oh, yeah. And to be honest, I've kind of built my business around that. I still don't take a ton of projects a year because for me as a creative, it's very important that I protect that creativity. And my so I take downtime and, and I, I do the things that will sort of rejuvenate me. So I'm never going to be the Jeffrey Billhuber that has 27 projects going on at one time. It's just not what interests me. So I keep it lean and I keep it mean. I want to talk more about that idea of building in downtime, because I think that's pretty revelatory. Most designers think I'm crazy. And I used to be part of this, we called ourselves the, you know, design collaborative or something like, I forget what it was, but it was like, so there, there's about 10 of us and they were always like, you go to yoga at two in the afternoon? I said, <laughs> Yeah. Because I'm focused in the morning and I'm focused in the late afternoon. After lunch, forget it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to build in those kinds of things. I feel like the standard operating procedure for most designers I talk to is go, 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 go some more. Yes. How, from a workflow perspective, but also financially, do you make that downtime work for you? Well, that's kind of also where Sean comes in, is you sort of, how much do you need to be happy? And I found that I don't need a lot to be happy. I don't need the 5,000 square foot house and the house at the beach. So I'm not a clothes horse. I don't have 97 cars. I just live comfortably within my means. Yeah. And you've built your business around sustaining that. Correct. You know, you mentioned Sean, and so I want to kind of introduce... Sean Lowe, you know, he is an amazing business consultant. 
He writes a column for Business of Home. He's one of my favorite industry experts. When did you meet Sean? I met Sean, God, um, pretty early on after I uh, started my firm. I would say he came in maybe 2010, 2011. Okay, so, you know, a year or two. Yeah, yeah. To a point where I was like, I need help. Were you looking for a business coach at that time? Or Yes, yes. Okay. It's one thing to run a pre-existing design firm like Jeffrey Bill Huber's, right? Which had 20 years history and all of this. All of a sudden, I'm not working at that scale. And I just knew I needed to figure it out. And I liked what he had to say. He had... This was the era of the blog, and he had a really great blog, and I liked that he didn't really – he's not a uh, sugar coater, (laughs) or he does not pussyfoot around, let's put it that way. And I liked his straightforward answers, and sometimes you need to be slapped around a little figuratively to to change, to move, to get out of stagnation, and – yeah, I, I joke that he's made me cry more times than my therapist. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I channel him a lot when I'm talking to clients or, or things like that. So I, I learned a lot from him and he helped me get a backbone a little bit. He helped me stand in my confidence as a creative and to charge accordingly. Yeah. I want to kind of go back to the beginning. You know, you said it was so different to run a pre-existing business. Correct. Than to, you know, dive into your own. And actually, on this show, Duval Reynolds said the same thing to me a few episodes ago. He was like, oh, like all these things that work, like the systems that are in place, you don't realize until you're on your own that you have to build those. Yes. What was it for you that was sort of the breaking point? I was trying to run my business in my office, like Jeffrey's office, and using the same vendors. And that sort of became messy. I had some vendors that straight out would not work with me until after two years, because they also worked with Jeffrey. And it was a lot of things like that, where I felt taken advantage of, because there was this existing relationship with these people, but at a larger scale. Yeah. You know, so for instance, when the, when the mover shows up at this installation of this my first project, which by the way was like twelve thousand square feet with two people, I'm like, what are you doing? But they knew that I was easygoing, and maybe that wouldn't be an issue, you know. And so I I just felt like, okay, it's time for vendors who don't know me as the second to someone, but make me number one, right? Yeah. Sean always would say, you need cheerleaders. Like you need to hire an assistant that's going to be your cheerleader that's going to lift you up. And so then I forged new relationships with other vendors where I came in as the principal of a firm. That's really interesting. No one talks about that. The growing pains of going out on your own after having, you know, I feel like people talk about all of the great stuff that they learned from their previous employers, but it has to be really gut-wrenching to make that transition. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm not pulling in the same amount of orders or same level of orders that that Jeffrey was. Right. So I have this relationship with these people, but now I'm, you know, I'm the new guy that's, you know, not bringing a tenth of the business maybe that that other firms are. 
Did you also go in sort of having the expectation that like, oh, this is just how they treat designers. And then it turns out maybe, well, this is how they treat designers at a certain scale. Correct. <laughs> yeah. But let's be honest and quite frank, the entire industry is that way. Yeah. From publication to vendors to everything, right? So yeah, why would it be any different? What was the first thing Sean talked you through changing about the way you were running your business? <laughs> <laughs> Within minutes of meeting him. So at the time, I was running the business out of my apartment. And he's, you know, he sits down, we, do, we go through pleasantries, and he's like, do you meet clients here? And I was like, I have, yeah. He said, you need to stop that immediately. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he said, here's why. These people are hiring you for 10,000 square feet, whatever, massive homes. Although your New York City apartment is lovely, people are not going to be able to extrapolate that you could do this on the same level. You know, and so he said, if you can't afford an office now, then just don't meet people here. And I didn't. And then I shortly thereafter got an office, which, by the way, I rarely met people in anyways, because for the most part, people want you to come to them. Yeah. Was having an office helpful, though? In mental separation, absolutely. There was that being able to shut the door and turn it off. Yeah. So that was helpful. And I need my solitude alone time, especially when I'm in the creation mode. So it's helpful. I would love, I would go there, you know, on the weekends and I would put on the music and take off my shoes and just sort of like, you know, walk around and, and you know, either sketch or draw the floor plans, which I do by hand or, you know, scheming or any any of those sort of things. How else have you set up your business to reflect how you work as a creative? Well, we establish a budget very early on. So I present to you, then I give you a line item budget of here's everything that's going to cost. Once I say, okay, great, you know, we do our, our value engineering here or there, or maybe I don't want to spend this much on, on what have you. Once we get that locked in and they're like, okay, we agree, then we move into purchasing phase. And at that point, I open an escrow account for every client in their name and my name. They have viewing rights to this account at any time. They have no ability to do any activity within that account. Right. And I get 50% of that budget deposited into an escrow account so that I can move at a pace that is beneficial to the client, but more so in relationship to how I actually work and how I like to design. And that is a lot of vintage pieces, a lot of, you know, antique or vintage goods. So these dealers, it's really important that I can say to them, I, instead of having this thing on hold for two weeks, while the client sends me a check and then we send you a purchase order, I can get from hold to a yes to payment in 72 hours. So that gives me power and credibility with these vendors. So that was genius on his part. <laughs> so the client has approved, like the presentation is like floor plan and like the budget line item for each of those things at that point. It's a little bit different on my end because so much of the pieces are found. Totally. So 
this is everything known. So the curtains, the rugs, the wallpaper, right. this is the sofa form and the fabrics that go on it, the pillows, all of that. Then we get that into production first. And while that stuff is in production, then I'm finding these one-off pieces. Got right? it. So in the budget, based on my like historical data of what we've spent on a side table, what the average cost is, I insert a, do, a not to exceed number. Yeah. So this side table, although it hasn't been found, it will cost no more than, let's say, $8,500 or something. So then we have an idea as to where the whole project's going. You mentioned before that you channel Sean a lot when you're talking to clients. Yeah. Him and Jeffrey yeah. a lot, because Jeffrey's also quite quotable. What does it mean to be confident in yourself as a creative when you're presenting to clients? For me, when I'm presenting, I have devoured this project, right? This is going back to the reason why I like to keep it small, because I like to obsess on the details of the project. I like to, perfect is not the right word because nothing is ever perfect, but that, you know, to where it feels it's the best that I could make it. So when I present it to you, I am fully invested in that project because I have manipulated that scheme 7,500 times. <laughs> you know, I've said before that uh, it's been said that I, I look like a lion hunting a gazelle when I'm going through this sort of process <laughs> because, you know, I'll put, the, I'll put the fabrics up on the board and then I look at them and I stand back and I look at them from different angles and then I rip one off and I put a different one up and just until the energy of the room feels right. So by the time I get to the client, I'm standing pretty solidly in, in what I'm presenting to them, you know? And I, I don't know. I have confidence in my work. There's never been a client who, after the installation, was like, oh, I hate it. Yeah. You know, it's just never happened. And so the more, the more that you get those in your back pocket, the more you're like, okay, I do know what I'm doing. And what I bring to the table here is my area of expertise, which is usually not the expertise of the client. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind designers about Morin Giles Leather, the world's leading leather developer. Morin Giles is dedicated to designing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit moreandgiles.com slash leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help you with your next project. That's M-O-O-R-E-A-N-D-G-I-L-E-S dot com slash leather. Are you bringing options or is it just, this is it, I've zeroed in on it, I know that this is the answer for you? Pretty much yes. <laughs> um, I will keep a little stash to the side, you know, if I'm like, okay, I don't know if this particular print's going to fly with them or whatever, but I have to bring you what I think is the absolute resolution for the space. I can't do, this is my third favorite resolution for your space, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, Oprah doesn't say, like, my third favorite things, right? She never had a show called that. <laughs> so I just say, like, okay, we're going to 
talk about it. If there's anything you don't like, we will revisit it. But I, I'm trying to get a more global approval. That's really interesting, too, because I feel like so often people tell me that, I don't know, I feel like lamps have come up a lot on this show, but like <laughs> that people get hung up on the lamp or the side table or the side chair, and it prevents yes. them from seeing the whole thing. Correct. That's because why I never do that. You, I say you're coming back and finding those things later. So this first presentation is really about how it makes people feel. Correct. And I'm definitely a a feeling-based designer. So it's, okay, here's the floor plan. I'm putting a sofa here. Do we like that we're putting a sofa here? Yes. Okay, great. Now, this is the fabric that I would like on the sofa. Do we agree? Yes. You know, and so then you just kind of narrow it down and narrow it down because you cannot present every option every fabric, every lamp, and because even my eyes would glaze over at that point. <laughs> Can clients see it? Do they get it? No, of course not. Okay. <laughs> no, no. But it's not their job to get it. Yeah. But my enthusiasm and my confidence in what I'm presenting to them really helps them. And reference images and, you know, if I want to do a big muraled room or something, I'll pull up a image of a room that I've done with like a crazy wallpaper or, you know, a crazy whaling scene mural or, you know, just something that gives them the idea. Yeah. But the first meeting is really about getting them emotionally attached to how the room works and how the room feels. How do you approach or have, how has your approach evolved as you make sure that you feel good about how you are compensated? for that creative endeavor? I probably don't. No, I do. I I mean, I definitely leave money on the table. And there are a lot of designers who do hourly. I I don't do that because, for one, they don't need to pay for 12 hours for me to figure out what lumbar pillow goes on that chair. (laughs) Um, So I I do it as a, you know, a design fee, and then we go into purchasing. So there's, there's just one fee at the beginning that sort of covers all of that. How do you talk about it or how do you talk about what that fee represents when you're talking to clients? This is my fee. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's the other thing too is delivery. If you act as if what you're asking is a lot of money, the clients are going to feel that and the clients are going to respond to that. So if you don't stand confident in what you're saying, then that leaves room potentially for them to try to negotiate. And negotiation always happens to some extent, you know, here or there, but I'm pretty straightforward. I, I just say very early in our conversations that the design fee is anywhere from this to this, depending on, you know, square footage or whatever. If there's construction involved, there's an additional fee. And then purchases are done, you know, at retail and I have a minimum spend per square footage. And if they're on board with that, then we move forward. You mentioned the square footage piece, but how are you calculating your design fee? Is that based on sort of scope of work? Is it based on... Okay. Scope of work, 100%, right? Um, Because not all projects are the same. Are we getting in and getting out? Is it because time is money in this industry? So the longer a project takes, you don't necessarily make the same dollar amount. Right. So if it looks like it's going to be quicker and in and out, then it's different. If I'm managing a ton of trades, then of course, then your your fee is going to be a little bit higher. How do you make all of this work? You know, you've said you want it to stay, stay small, stay lean. Yes. 
how do you make that work? How, how do you prioritize? Where are you deeply involved and where is your team stepping in? And what kind of team do you have supporting you in this process? So in being lean, that also means you're lean in staff. Yep. So the staff is really three people and one deals with bookkeeping and, and the accounting sort of stuff. And one one deals with the purchase orders and vendor relations. And I'm VIP of creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the whole team. That That's it, right? But this is part of staying lean. Yeah. Because an extra project may then trigger, I need to hire another person. I need a bigger office space. Now, you know, and so then the profit that you may get from adding on that additional project may be irrelevant in the amount of resources that you then need to add to maintain that project. Do clients only talk to you or are clients also interacting with your other team members? Myself and the other team members, not accounting so much, but yes. So uh, Jean Antonio, who does all of the the business side of it, he deals with vendors. He talks to clients about, you know, anything that has to do with money, fees, purchase orders, those kinds of things, so that we can try to keep my relationship to some extent mostly creative with the clients. So after that initial conversation where you say, here's how the fees work, this is what it'll cost, you aren't the money guy anymore. Correct. Then, it, then it's Jean Antonio will send you an outline of how we work, recapping all of the things that I discussed here, and boom. And then he makes that next. Was that something you always did, or is that a change you made? Relatively new. How does that feel? Uh, invigorating, <laughs> because it's all the stuff that I don't like. Yeah, and it's also the most like meticulous, and I could care less about tracking a CFA, you know, or right that kind of stuff is just. It's above my pay grade, so to speak. And he's, <laughs> he's very good at, at those details and he excels in that. So good on him and good on me. Were there things early on in starting your own firm where you looked at certain tasks or certain parts of the business and thought, I have to get rid of this. Like, I don't ever want to do this again. Yeah, kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> Just the whole thing. <laughs> uh, in general. Yeah. I don't enjoy them. You know, that's so funny. Yeah. Some people love like their kitchen and bath all the way. For me, I'm like, give me a drapery and, you know, a a wall covering. And, you know, of course I do them and and that, but I just, it's just one thing I don't really, I don't love. That's so funny. (laughs) It's just lucky that there's only one per house most of the time. Well, now we all need outdoor kitchens, right? Oh, right. With outdoor living rooms with 100 inch outdoor televisions. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about, what is changing? What are the new things your clients are asking for? Outdoor spaces, for sure. You know, I would say in the last two years have become very important for people. And the houses now are getting so large. So, for instance, I'm working on a on a project uh, on Sullivan's Island off the coast of uh, Charleston. And, you know, there's... The, the house, of course, because it's it's on a, a barrier island, it has to be raised off the ground, right? So it's, you know, seven and a half feet off the ground. So there's an entire footprint of the house below the house that has a kitchen, a living room, oh you know, with the out, all of these. So it we have 
so many screen porches and it's just it's just the nature of of the beast um and so this house in particular has a lot of outdoor space we're taking a quick break from the show to tell you about gabby where livable luxury is more than just a look Gabby is the go-to brand for fresh transitional design pieces that strike the perfect balance between form and function. Learn more about Gabby's in-stock product and exclusive to the trade pricing by visiting Gabby online or at a to the trade showroom in Atlanta, High Point, Dallas, or Chicago. And for a special offer on your next order, go to gabbyhome.com B-O-H. That's G-A-B-B-Y home.com slash B-O-H. So often success or kind of getting to that next level in your career for a designer is about growth in some way, shape or form. What are you measuring or what is your yardstick for saying, oh, this is awesome. I've made it or, oh, this is the next step. Are the projects I'm doing exciting me? Are the projects, you know, am I proud of what I'm putting out there? Am I still in, enjoying the work? Do I still love what I'm I'm doing? I don't really have a formula. I yeah. just know what we need, and you know, I take a little off the top of every every deposit that comes in that goes into just sort of a, a fund for emergency fund for things like global pandemics where <laughs> everything right, stops, right, and right. you know, so the business has a, a steady cash flow and reserves. That's amazing. People don't talk about that very often. I didn't know it at the time, but (laughs) boy, was I happy. Keith Granite wrote a book a few years ago, and that was something that I learned from that book. Just take 10% off of every check that comes into the business, right? It's not my take. It's just sort of that emergency fund. And then when you're smaller, everything I do is for the business, really. So yeah. it just it all becomes write off and and those kinds of things. Totally, staying small. You also said you don't take on the extra job because it might mean you need to hire the extra person. How have you figured out what is that cadence or what is sort of a comfortable project load at any given moment? Like three. Okay. That's comfortable. And look, if I was at three and the right project walked through the door, then I would figure it out. I'm not going to turn down any valid projects, but a lot of, at least with the cold calls, end up really not going anywhere. So I do say no a lot. Yeah. If if the budget doesn't fit or they just want me to do three rooms or something along those lines, it's a no for me. Yeah. (laughs) To quote TikTok. Yeah. And having that number, that three in your head has to make it a lot easier and give you the confidence to say no again and again. Yes. Do you think of yourself as a brand or how do you think about branding in general? I mean, I guess as I'm a business and so I get, I am a brand for sure. I kind of hate the word because it's a little schmarmy Instagram yeah. influencer-y, but to an extent, I am a brand, right? My brand is color. My brand is pattern and me. You just quoted TikTok. Um, <laughs> and you were doing some really, you've done some really fun and funny stuff on social media. Um, yes. What got you, you know, what made you want to kind of play with that medium? It was 100% a complete fluke. <laughs> I, I joke that it was a pandemic project. Yeah. 
so TikTok has this feature, like a green screen where you can hold up your hand and the picture comes into it. So I have been scrolling Instagram and that Pierre Jean Array, like Sean Degar chair, was in every third post. And I was like, okay. And so I just did this TikTok was like, okay, in the new year, can we please stop with this? And I hold up my hand and it's a Sean Degar. I was like, we've seen it. Pierre Jean Array only made so many of them. And now you can buy them at Wayfair. So can we please move on? <laughs> And my timing was excellent because of Reels. Yeah. Reels was new and they were trying to bust it out. So I, re- I would record them on TikTok, post them on TikTok, and then screen record them and edit them and put them onto Instagram. So they just turned into this thing that all of a sudden I was like, okay. So I just started doing them. But the, it, the problem was... It wasn't scalable because I'm not a digital editor. It became a lot. But the main thing was I never wanted to attack anyone's work or product directly. I mean, Pierre Jean Array was dead, so he wasn't going to mind. (laughs) Right. And I did did, uh, the polar bear sofa, you know, something about just because it works for Kanye doesn't mean it works for you. Right. So then once the low-hanging fruit, like barn doors and accent walls and all of those things... So it became more challenging. We talk at Business of Home all the time about how like interior design doesn't have criticism in the way that some other industries do. Yeah. But I also feel like there's something about this industry that makes it so hard to do that without feeling mean. I will say there was a little bit of that too, where I was like, I don't want to be known as this like bitch. And I do think that I... I didn't think yours was. But yeah, you should have seen my DMs, um, <laughs> especially Barn Door. Barn Door and Shiplap. Oh, people I were personally got, attacked? Ooh, I got a little too close to the sun, okay. as they say, and <laughs> uh, the Joanna Gaines people came for me. Okay. Wow. One, it was hard for me to start sourcing these because, uh, you know, the low hanging fruit was gone, and I could only like peruse Zillow to try to find images of that represented my concept so long. Right. And then 2022, hello, it's you know business for everyone was crazy, so it just kind of fell to the wayside. Yeah. I mean, if I could find an editor or someone that could help me with it, I would maybe revisit it. <laughs> but for right now, it's a pandemic project. What did it teach you about social? How did it get you thinking differently about social media? I will say it kind of turned me off to it a little bit. And to the point where I'm not even really that active on Instagram any longer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just a sort of fakeness of it all became really sort of evident. Because those videos were very popular and they went all over. Oh, yeah. So all of a sudden, a lot of people were talking to me and that never gave me the time of day before. And so it it just kind of turned me off. And was it a place where business came in for you in a meaningful way? Never, ever. Mm -hmm. That was another reason where I was like, okay, you know, it's not, I know designers that get a lot of work through Instagram. I just don't. Yeah. Did a lot of press come from Instagram? A little bit. I mean, de- okay, definitely during that, the reels genre of my, oh, or the I mean, era. Oh, that's my, how we met. Yeah. Right, I mean, exactly. Right. Too, so. And then, you know, I did a lot of lives and some podcasts there, but it's never in a, any way brought any business. Have you always photographed your work? I didn't always. 
In the beginning, I didn't. And I regret that now. But uh, this was sort of, you know, I started in 2009. Instagram wasn't what it was. There wasn't that much need outside of your website, really, at that point. Yeah. So it wasn't quite as needed. But then once social media came along and the just insatiable demand for content that I'd never had that before, yeah. you know, and that ties in with back to the video too. It's like, wow, you know, it's never enough. You know, for a while I had someone just helping me with the social media because it was like, oh, I'm done with, I'm done with Instagram right now, but it's not smart to do it. So I was paying someone to do that. You know, that's another expense that in 2009, I never would have imagined. You know, right, right. You need a social media manager. You know, I've since stopped that as well, but yeah. Does it work? Does it work when it's not you? No. Okay. Is that why you stopped? Correct. Yeah. Because they weren't answering, right? So they weren't answering. And that's another thing too. I'm, I was being, trying to be very interactive with everyone. Well, when you're getting, you know, 1500 comments, it starts, it becomes really that's a, a job. lot of work, a lot yeah. of work, you know, but I was trying to ride that algorithm engagement thing. So yes, they can tell it's not your voice. And if you're not answering people, then people stop engaging. And I mean, separate even from sort of that algorithm and the engagement piece, I'm guessing we are alike in this way. I feel like when I post something and people write back, people connect with it. Like as a human being, I want to write you back and it's overwhelming. Yes. And if they're complimenting my work and saying how I feel like, because I feel like the work is a part of me, it's came out of me, that the least I could do is thank them, right? Right. Multiply that by 1500. And that's a whole Tuesday. Correct. <laughs> it, it is. And, yeah. you know, the, it, the Instagram's downfall started when I turned off my notifications. Ooh, so I used okay. to have notifications and they would pop up and it's like, this was, da, 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 da. well, that's how I knew those original ones were kind of blowing up. Cause like I was all of a sudden my, my phone was just going crazy. So I noticed when I turned them off, I was not checking Instagram. And then I was like, okay. And then before I knew it, I was like, oh, it's been a week <laughs> since mm -hmm. I've been, you know, so that, that, uh, that helped. <laughs> What role has getting published played in your firm and in your success as you see it? It's great for brand awareness, a client's looking you up, they Google you, you know, the more, the more hits you can get, probably the better. The calls I get are on page 68, you have a paperweight to the left of the, you know, where oh, did you get exactly. that or something? It's a lot of that or other designers sourcing for their projects. I have never once uh, landed a job from publication and I have been in all of them. That's wild. Yep. Do you still value getting future work published? Not so much, no. But I think that's kind of the, the way of the digital world. Yeah. Right. Um, it takes a long time for print publication generally from the time that they agree to do your project to the time it gets published. Most people are not willing to hold on to those assets for, you know, a minimum of six months. Yeah. Yeah. No, no one is willing to do that, especially when some of these designers have platforms that are, you know, maybe on par with circulation numbers for some of these magazines. Yeah. 
you know, for instance, like Gracie Wallpaper will have like 300,000 followers or something, you know, that's kind of a circulation number. Right. And so if they pick up your photo that you've posted and tag them in, you could argue that's just as good. It's not better because it lives on. Mm-hmm. It lives on. And, you know, people love a retweet or a repost or whatever. A lot of people on Instagram love to post other people's work. And so there you go. Is moving to L.A. a significant part of your career story? Significant in that I did it and it's now (laughs) where I'm located. Oddly, the majority of my work is still East Coast. Yeah. So it has influenced maybe my, my design aesthetic to some extent. Um, I'm definitely finding myself a little bit less pattern exuberant is maybe just a a little bit, you know, and, um, you know, for instance, the, uh, the Sullivan's Island house that I was talking about, it's, it's very, you know, the, the great room I'm doing this, um, beautiful Elizabeth Dow, like white cork on the walls. And then we just have, you know, shears um, into sort of a, you know, an oatmeal-y colored um, shears from Otis and, you know, light sort of wood walls and a light wood ceiling. So it's the very neutral shell. And then I'm popping in some colors, but for the most part, it's kind of, which I dare to say, but neutral with a pop of color, which is one of the phrases I hate the most, but um, <laughs> it, it, so it's less as opposed to like, you know, color on the wall and pattern on every piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it surprising to see aesthetic shifts in yourself? Yes and no. I mean, because I mean, I, I don't want to wear the same thing I wore eight years ago. So why would yeah. I, why would my eye still be attracted to something I, I did eight years ago? So I think if, you're constantly learning and evolving and, and sort of observing the world around you. How can, how can it not change? And your location highly influences you. Yeah. And then geography, right? I couldn't find an 18th century English chest of drawers in Los Angeles if I tried. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course I could, but those kinds of things didn't make it here. But yeah, it changes what's at your fingertips. Right. Did your vendor relationships change with that move? Yeah, a bit, a bit, right? I had to find upholsterers out here. I had to find, you know, other people there. But again, most of my work is on the East Coast. So it's more beneficial for me to use an East Coast upholsterer for the most part. Although we are doing some California uh, upholstery here for Sullivan's Island. So... Yeah, they they did change, but again, it's global, right? Like I can call David at Studio Four and say, "Hey, you know, I need twenty eight sisal carpets or something," and I get a UPS three days later. Oh, and with the antiques and vintage, that's all (laughs) online too at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does that take any of the thrill of the hunt away, or is it actually (laughs) hundred thousand million percent? Is there, I mean, is there a, a, I would imagine there's a performance advantage too, in some ways. Well, it's much easier. Yeah. Right. But I mean, my favorite thing was to go to Stanford and hit all of those, you know, antique malls that are within a block of each other. Yeah. And I could get a project basically, you know, pulled together from those sources. When you look back, what is one thing you know now? that you wish you had known when you started your firm? 
well, I guess the power of no, but it's hard to say, it's hard to say to someone who's young and hungry and just starting out to say no, but not every project is a fit. Yeah. And I can look back on every project that I maybe wasn't as thrilled with uh, the process as some of the others. And I knew going in that perhaps that that would be the case. So I knew in my gut that maybe this client wasn't really for me. Yeah. Do you think there's a shortcut to that? Or do you just have to take the bad job so that you know what a bad job is? Yes, I think that's kind of it. You know, every <laughs> everyone today would love to get, you know, to the finish line, but that's not how life or the world works. So you do kind of have to, you know, unless you, you're sitting on a trust fund and it does not matter, you could say no all you want. Right. But if you have a mortgage or rent to pay, in the beginning, you do kind, you have to be a little bit less judicial. <laughs> Sean may disagree on that, but yeah, in the beginning, <laughs> I would do your powder room if you were willing to pay me. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, right. Well, maybe not, but still. Yeah, and I, I can look back on the projects that, you know, I'm maybe less proud of, the early, early ones, you know, that I'm like, oh, okay. But I also didn't have the budgets that make them look as lush or or the the money to afford a stylist to make them look great or yeah. the, the photographer who makes my work come to life. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kayla. It's been fun. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news or great podcasts, check out new products or browse job openings, head on over to businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the show or a story of your own to share, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at tradetales at businessofhome.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the show. Trade Tales is produced by me, Caitlin Peterson, and Fred Nikolaus. This episode was edited by Caroline Burke and Michael Castaneda. Our theme music is by Kyle Scott Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.